Chapter 5 Other than embarrassing personal confessions, the rest of the night passes without trouble, which turned out to be a small blessing, since both of them were too tired from the night before to keep any sort of watch. Before the shield maidens had attacked them, Tony would have trusted himself to wake up if a human approached. Knowing that there were humans out there capable of nearly getting close enough to stick a sword in him was disturbing, but not enough to keep him awake after the first moon passed the meridian. Dawn arrived with the brisk wind and clouds on the western horizon, accompanied by the chirps of a few birds, either too brave or too foolhardy to care that there was a dragon in the area. They'd slept in a mixed pile of the traveling cloaks, body heat and the fire enough to keep them warm against the first bite of the southern winter. Lying buried against Steve's chest, Tony watched the sky turn to purple, and then pink, edged with gold that peeked through the trees. A cold draft crept in along their toes where the cloak had shifted, making Tony shiver and curl up a little to get away from it. He used it as an excuse to nuzzle into Steve's neck, pressing a kiss to his jaw. Two days of beard growth that made Tony look like a wandering vagrant were nearly invisible on Steve. The stubble was so pale it vanished into his skin, except when the light hit it just right, and so soft that it tickled more than scraped. Steve's arms tensed under Tony's head as he stretched, body arching against Tony's in a way that made lingering at the camp seem like a splendid idea. Almost immediately, guilt twisted through him for even thinking about it. His king, his father, was dying back at the Citadel, and he was thinking about wasting time with a human, an exceptionally handsome human, but still. It was one thing to pass time when they had to stop for the evening, but a deliberate delay was nothing but selfish. Sleep-blurred blue eyes blinked at him hazily while Tony pulled away. "'Good morning,' Steve muttered through a voice thick and rough from sleep. It made Tony's stomach twist with a different, altogether more pleasant sensation. Leaning down, he pressed a quick kiss to Steve's lips, sighing when they parted easily under his. "'A few minutes won't hurt,' he told himself and tried to pretend that he believed it. When the kiss ended, Steve's eyes were wide open and bright, no longer fogged over. Tony took that as a sign and forced himself to get up, grabbing for boots at the foot of their shared pallet. We should leave soon. It's a long day of flying. To his credit, Steve nodded and rolled out, accepting his own boots with easy acceptance. It looks like we might have some weather. Is that going to be a problem? Tony cast an eye upward, judging the clouds. Wind, maybe. I don't think I can fly above it and carry you. It's too cold up there, and the air is thin. An electrical storm would be a problem, too. He'd never traveled much himself, but Rody had told him about a storm on the border that had grounded the whole flight for a week. They'd had to fight as humans, and consequently had lost a lot of ground. Dragons, in general, didn't do well when they couldn't fly. We'll worry about it if it happens, then. Steve had shoved on his boots and was collecting his armor from the oilcloth they'd wrapped it in to keep the frost off. Unlike Tony's, it wasn't spelled against rust, and Tony didn't have the time to handle it while on the move. He shrugged his scale armor over his shoulders, stretching to make it settle. If you have to, leave me near a creek and go on alone. I'll find a town eventually. Tony paused and slipping his overtunic on, staring at Steve in mild bemusement. Of all things he'd expected, that hadn't been one of them. "'Of course you would,' he finally replied, as if there were any chance at all he might be willing to leave Steve in the middle of nowhere, just so he could get an hour or so of better flying time. Considering that they'd been attacked twice, 
what it saved him in time, he'd probably just lose in injuries. Breaking fast and packing ended up taking nearly no time at all. Steve seemed a little put off by the food Tony had brought, flipping the flatbread over as if he expected it to puff out into a loaf. The spicy spread gained his approval, though, which was a relief. Tony wasn't sure if humans could even stand dragon food. His mother hated it. There was a chef who did nothing but make certain she had suitably bland meals. It was one of the many things Tony was glad he hadn't inherited from that side of his lineage. He might not be able to change shape like a proper dragon, but at least he didn't have to eat differently. They took off into the air, just as the sun finished crossing the horizon completely. To the west, the clouds had taken a dark, ugly purple tone with the coming day, like a bruise spreading across the sky. Rising to his normal flight level was out of the question, even if he weren't flying with a passenger. Even a few thousand feet over the trees, the crosswinds turned brutal. Through the armor, he could feel Steve clinging to him with more force than he had the day before, arm tense where it crossed the back of his neck, with one eye on the clouds behind them. Tony held on tight and put on as much speed as he could. Through application of effort and speed, they managed to stay riding the edge of the storm for three hours before it finally caught up to them. Rain spit down from above, drenching Steve to the bone and trickling cold water into the joints of Tony's armor. A headache formed behind Tony's eyes, tightly knotted like a muscle held too long tense. It was accompanied by an unpleasant buzz in his bones, unlike anything he'd ever felt before. The first round of thunder made Tony's heart nearly stop. Overhead, thunderclouds that had been hidden by the first bank of the storm crackled with electricity. The buzzing sensation grew worse, turning to a sort of nausea that centered in his head and chest more than in his stomach. Magic sputtered in the suit, little surges that dropped and rose, making them wobble on their path, down to nearly the treetops. "'Tony!' Steve yelled over the rising wind, sounding audibly worried, even through the background noise. "'Tony, we should!' A sudden crosswind sent them tumbling. Instinctively, Tony twisted Steve around to his front, locking his arms around his waist and clinging. Tree limbs crackled just under them, joining the buzz and nausea in one horrific, disoriented mix. Yeast felt like a constant, a sure thing that was alternately directly in front of him or just under his feet. He fought to hold on to Steve as well as he could, but the armor wasn't listening, and the rain slicking down leather and metal as well as any oil. Steve shouted as a thick branch caught them off guard. It yanked him from Tony's grip and out of sight. Steve! Tony tasted fire in the back of his throat, choking on it as the armor refused to turn, refused to stop. Another flash of lightning and everything just dropped. Even the false yeast, vanishing like a candle, being snuffed, and then coming back in every direction all at once. Desperate, Tony reached up to his breastplate and grabbed the power medallion, planted in its center. It pulsed against his palm with an ugly, hot feeling, adding to the twisting in Tony's head. Yanking hard, it popped free with a hiss of displaced magic. In a crackle of breaking wood and dead limbs, he crashed down to the forest floor, landing with a hard thud and a splash of puddled rainwater. The medallion pulsed under his fingertips, glowing icy blue under a thick coating of muck. Grounds. Tony focused down on the feeling of it at his back, cold mud and water seeping through his armor. Ground was down, and sky was up. It didn't feel like down and up. It felt like forward and up and left north diagonal. If he closed his eyes and tried to close down the constant pull of directions, it tasted like blue summer, a waterfall of numbness singing in his head. Better to be confused with the same sense, he decided, slowly pushing himself upright. 
They'd flown far enough that the thick woods had turned into even thicker ones, the branches hundreds of feet away and tightly woven as a piece of good brocade. The forest floor was that peculiar sort of bare that happened when the trees soaked up the sunlight. A few ferns curled their way around the massive trunks, and one or two particularly hardy shrubs that had found toeholds, but for the most part it was dead leaves and dirt. Left below, left southeast back, he could make out the hole that he'd created when he crashed only by the way the rain fell more easily there than anywhere else. There was no sign of a similar hole where Steve might have gone through. Ground is down. Keeping that thought fixed in his mind, Tony turned slowly, setting his footsteps at right angles so he knew that after four he'd finish the circuit. The hole in the canopy wasn't perfect. There was a faint angle to it from his velocity. As long as he hadn't somehow gotten turned around while flying blind, it was a fair bet that he'd come from that direction. Rain didn't fall so much as it oozed, a steady drip and splash. Lightning slashed through the sky overhead, lighting up the trees and making the shadows blur together. Each crash of thunder was met with a spike in the buzz behind his eyes. The headache had turned into a pounding, writhing mass that beat in time with the rain. Carefully, with knees that felt like water and didn't want to step right, Tony lined himself up with the angle and picked a tree directly ahead. It was like being drunk, but more so. Worse than the time he, Happy, and Bruce had experimented with some rot gut the humans made out of apples. Every step was an invitation to fall, another threat of buckling over and losing his way. He barely dared blink for fear of falling over. North, up, south, up, east, down, down, down. When he reached his chosen tree, Tony planted his feet and braced himself, swallowing back the sharp burn in his stomach. "'Steve!' he shouted, wincing when the sound made his head swim. "'Steve, can you hear me?' Nothing. No call back. No groan. Cursing, Tony forced himself upright, picked another tree, and started walking again. It took four trees before his calls earned an answering yell. Sound was good. Sound he could pinpoint. He followed the noise, which was off to the left, up, shoulder, back, north, slightly off the line he'd been walking. When Steve appeared out from behind a tree trunk, Tony nearly collapsed onto him in relief. "'You're okay,' he breathed, closing his eyes to try and block out the inconsistent directions. He didn't need to think about them now. Steve could do it. Steve and that idiot paper he called a map. "'I'm fine. A little bruised, but fine.' One of Steve's big palms cradled the back of Tony's neck, where the helmet and the shoulder armor left a gap. He was as coated with mud as Tony was, helmet streaked with brown and bright blue, scale mail crusted. You didn't keep flying? Of course, I didn't want to leave you. Tony evaded as he pulled away, waddling on his feet. Ground is down. We should find somewhere to wait out the storm. My cloak's waterproof. It'll keep the worst off of us. Come on. Seeming to see that Tony was having trouble, Steve shifted his grip to Tony's hand. Tony clung tight and let himself be led. They found a nearly dry bit of ground, where a small hillock kept too much rainwater from puddling. Some carefully placed limbs and Steve's cloak didn't solve everything, but gave them a place to curl up together without getting much wetter. There wasn't room to stretch out, but Steve held out his arm, and Tony leaned into him and closed his eyes against the bewildering muddle of directions. As it turned out, Steve's side was as certain as a tree or the ground to know where he was. The storm didn't pass as fast as Tony would have liked, but the thunder and lightning died down after only three hours, 
and took Tony's disorientation with it. As soon as he could be sure of not hitting his thumb, Tony dug out one of the stolen mage locks to investigate how it worked as a way to pass the time. It was a fascinating little piece. The fairy silver only neutralized magical nature, only worked inward, and even then only functioned when it was closed. There were more fail-safes on it than Tony even used when working with explosive spells. As long as it wasn't being worn, anyone could cast on it all they needed. "'I think I'm going to make you a bracelet,' Tony decided, bending the strip into a tight spiral. "'Something to keep the cold off.' Steve huffed and slid in closer to Tony's side. "'I don't need anything like that. I'm fine.' Which was, Tony had to admit, objectively true. He was a solid block of heat against the drizzle, like curling up under Rody or Jan's wings on a cold day. "'Now you're fine, but I could feel you shivering up there. It's amazing you haven't gotten frostbite.' One of Steve's arms slid around his shoulder. "'Really, you don't?' Tony huffed and bent his head to the bracelet. "'Yes, I do. Now shut up and pass me my pack. It has a hammer.' He couldn't take off what made it damp and magic. That seemed to be worked into the nature of the metal, as much part of it as the silver it was from, as much a spell as changing shape was to a dragon. What he did do was put a locking spell on that, just in case. Steve didn't look like he had any sort of magic in him, and on asking, he said he didn't, but there was no telling with some people. On top of that, he layered a spell that would keep the worst of the water and cold off Steve. Without a proper forge, he couldn't make it properly watertight, but there was a lot of joy to be found in bludgeoning the tiny thing. Steve accepted the bracelet with a little more grace than he'd shown to the proposal of making it, saying thank you, as if Tony had only passed him a drink. But Tony caught him twisting it around in his hands and smiling. About an hour after the last crash of thunder, Steve put on his new bracelet and they took off into the sky again, though it was still drizzling. Flying through rain was disgusting, making the breezes unsteady and occasionally blinding Tony with a sudden face full of water. They'd lost too much time to wait for it to pass, though. The storm had cost them most of the day. It was late afternoon before the clouds parted, finally putting the sun at their back, and evening on the coming horizon. In exchange, they got a fresh, fair wind that was still warm with the last traces of autumn. The trees below glowed red and orange and brown with fall color, lit on fire after being washed clean. Below, the Hydra River sparkled the same clear blue as the sky. "'Is it always like this?' Steve yelled over the rush of the wind. Tony had to laugh. "'Sometimes it's better.' At sunset, they touched down to eat a quick meal and to stretch their legs. They'd finally run out of forest, trading endless trees for gently rolling plains that were covered in shrubs and prickly vines. They both had to free themselves from the things more than once. The nagging sense of urgency that had worried Tony that morning had only gotten worse. He couldn't make himself sit down, could barely stand to eat the chunk of bread and cheese that Steve pressed on him. "'We should camp for the night,' he said reluctantly, looking up at the slowly darkening sky. If we get up early tomorrow, we can make it just after sundown, or take two short days and only be a day late. Steve watched from the spot of ground he'd cleared to stretch out on. You don't mean that. He'd taken his helmet off, and was using it to balance his flatbread on while he spread some more cheese. Sunlight caught his hair and turned it to solid gold, fit to make any dragon's heart beat double time, and his eyes matched the sky and the river. Tony caught himself wishing Steve were a dragon instead of a human, and then laughed inwardly. If Steve were a dragon, he'd likely never have given Tony the time of day. 
Yanking himself out of his revere, Tony shook his head and whipped around, walking three short strides before turning back and repeating them. I don't want it, but I mean it. You need to rest. You're not in armor, and you're not made to fly all day. We can pick up speed tomorrow if we have to. A thoughtful expression crossed Steve's face. He finished spreading his cheese, wrapped the soft ball back in its wax cloth, and then rolled up. You can fly at night, can't you? Of course I can. Even if they ran into another thunderstorm, that was what the stars were for. Not that Tony intended to let himself get knocked from the sky again. He should have listened to Rody's story better. If he hadn't been flying, he suspected that the effect wouldn't have been nearly so bad. Steve took another bite. He took his time chewing, obviously using the chance to put his thoughts in order. When he finished, he nodded to himself and swallowed. Then why don't we fly to the falls like we'd planned? Make a short night of it instead of a long day tomorrow. Because you'll be too exhausted to hang on? Tony suggested, though his heart leapt at the chance to keep moving. Steve grinned. Then don't drop me which was how they ended up traveling until past midnight. Flying at night was nothing like doing it during the day. Overhead the stars were clearer than they ever were on the ground. Diamonds didn't compare. The moon cast a clear, steady light that turned the world below into silver and shadow. And then the second moon set, covering silver in a blanket of darkness, broken only occasionally by the glimmer of a house or a town below, like little candles. They nearly overshot the falls, Tony only noticed them by the sudden scent of water below and the faint rush of the river. Without moonlight, the water was just a faint glimmer, more of a presence by its sound than anything else. But then his magic was starting to tire, and he set them down gratefully at the edge of the river bank. Steve's knees started to buckle for a second before he caught himself and straightened, cursing his back. Snickering, Tony managed not to say, I told you so, and set about taking off his armor. Rain and subsequent drying had stiffened the leather straps to wood, and this time it was his turn to curse. A shadow blocked the stars. Here, let me, Steve murmured, strong hands plucking at the straps Tony had been fighting with on his breastplate. Sighing, Tony leaned into Steve and let him handle the armor. His headache had gone with the storm, but the echo of it played along the back of his skull. Steve's hands were wonderfully capable, loosening buckles that had been like rocks to Tony. The shoulder plate went first, with amazing quickness, followed by the breastplate and stomach guards. As they dropped, it seemed the itching presence to move went with them. When the hip armor was lifted off, Tony took a deep breath, and it felt like the first one he'd had all day. Warm fingers skimmed along his sides, drawing a low groan from Tony. Arousal flickered at the edge of his awareness, overshadowed by the knowledge that tomorrow was going to be even more difficult. We shouldn't, he mumbled into Steve's shoulder. I know. I just like touching you. Steve kissed his temple, where his helmet had matted his hair into a sweaty mess. And you were worried about me not making it. Sit down. I'll make camp. Tony wanted to protest, but the most he managed was a vague mumble. Now that he wasn't actively flying, exhaustion had caught up with a vengeance. He found a clear patch of grass to sit on and managed not to fall over while lowering himself down. Steve had left the lower segments of the armor untouched. Luckily, the thigh plates and shin guards weren't as stiff as the rest of them. He still fumbled, trying to get them off, and then again when it took time to pull the armored boots off. The camp Steve made was quick and rudimentary, a cleared spot for their shared pallet and another for the fire. There were a few shrubs and one or two scraggly trees that provided tinder for the night. Damp, half-rotted and brittle, 
Steve somehow got them lit into a small, cheery fire, without asking Tony for magical help. Then he plied Tony with some fresh water from the river, a strip of dried meat from their dwindling supplies, and practically forced him to lay down. Through hazy, half-focused eyes, Tony watched as Steve banked the fire and stripped down out of his scale mail. When Steve slid under the bearskin cape next to him, he finally relaxed into sleep. The kitchens of Aze Terioth were strange, more a butcher's than a place for food to be made. It reeked of blood and sweat and spices so potent that Natil's nose locked up out of self-preservation the moment she stepped in. Animals were cooked whole, or nearly such, with only a faint touch of colorful vegetables for aesthetics. Off to the side, the new supervisor of the kitchens, James, was overseeing the butchering of a goat to tempt the king to eat. Unlike the rest, it was being put on the plate raw, without even a sprinkle of spices. James watched the process with a stern eye, and only the most trustworthy of people handled the actual meat. For so straightforward a process, the audience was thick and enraptured, dragons pressing in shoulder to shoulder in their wingless forms to make more room. Everyone knew the king had been poisoned. Lord Morgan made sure they never forgot it, with his storming about and insistence on being so very helpful trying to find the source. Everywhere had been checked and scrubbed, from the floors they all walked on to the torches that lit the rooms. Each suggestion started a new rush, a new panic. Political factions had lined up, egging on the frightened rest. If the king died, no one doubted that Morgan would be on the throne the next day. No one put any hope in their prince or his mother who hadn't left the king's side in days. The only choices left were those who were eager to see Morgan take his place, and those who held out for hope of a miracle. Natil paused to watch the gory business for a moment, arms heavy with the queen's laundry, though she was on a servant's errand. She was dressed in silks, with her red hair done up with two sticks, as befitted one of the queen's companions. Normally, in the citadels, ladies-in-waiting weren't expected to do such things as carry laundry or cook meals. Since the king's illness, it had become expected. Only those closer to the royal family dared be trusted. Naturally, they all did what they could— but there was always a shortage of hands. Seeing the king's meal well and safely in hand, Natil ducked around the watching dragons and continued on her task. She didn't mind carrying laundry down to be scrubbed. It gave her a chance to get out of the queen's rooms, that Hilsian-styled area where almost no one went other than herself and the other woman. One of them, Bethany, a dragon who was surprisingly good at pretending humanity, had told her that the prince's rooms were there as well, but they'd been locked up while he was gone. Halls in the Citadel were never straightforward. Occasionally there were stairs, but only where there wasn't room for a slope or for a climbing wall instead. In many places, stairs had been hastily added at some point in the recent past, graceful marble curves that were at complete odds with the granite walls. Azi Terriot was a place made by nature as much as by dragon, some places carved from living rock, and others left in their natural state. Vibrant colors and gilding were everywhere, the arched ceilings decorated with elaborate patterns and paintings. Precious jewels and metals used where paint had been deemed insufficient. Even the servants' areas were rich with the king's ransom. The laundry was another example of the extravagance dragons took for granted. A minimally used area, deep down in the mountain where hot water trickled in to form little pools. It still had rubies embedded in its walls, 
They formed the scales of a dark-haired mermaid as she seemed to rest at the edge of the water, eyes wicked and smile sweet. Since dragons seldom spent any real time in their human form, their clothing could last for months before it needed to be scrubbed. The only people in the citadel who used human attire with any frequency were the humans in the royal family. There was no reason for gems to be used in such an out-of-the-way place, and yet there had been. Next to the laundry was the bathing area, which was nothing more than a heated underground lake where occasionally fire dragons could be found hiding away from the winter cold. They detested it the way cats did water, with a deep passion and considerable hissing, and would rather sleep through the chill than anything else. Ice dragons, on the other hand, could spend days buried in the snowy courtyard, reveling in it until hunger drove them off. Heat of any sort left them uncomfortable and out of sorts. So Natil was surprised to hear the icy, crackling tones of an ice dragon coming from the bathing room. She dropped off the laundry with the servants who worked there and kept walking, creeping now. The main entrance to the cavernous chamber was several floors above, where dragons didn't have to debase themselves by walking on two legs. But the humans had their own little inlet where they too could soak. Natil hiked up her skirt around her hips and eased around the corner stepping down into the water to join more jewel-scaled mermaids and human children that had been painted frolicking in the water. Not come back. Do you think something happened to her? Don't be ridiculous. Likely it's the wind. She was never a strong flyer. Someone, long, long ago, had built a wall out of rock that curved around to hide the human's little nook. She pressed herself to it, inching along into the deeper and deeper water until it brushed up against the crux of her thighs and she didn't dare risk going further without getting her skirts wet and raising suspicion. If you've gotten her killed. She was my friend as much as yours. She knew the risk when she went. If she is gone, we will make arrangements. This has gone too far. You reek of human filth. How do we know you're not a human lover like them? Dragon voices were different enough from humans that she couldn't pin the owners. All ice dragons sounded similar to her, and all fire dragons the same. Ice crackled like frost would if it could speak, rough and flat, with a snap like glass shattering. There were three of them, arguing with two others, who had the low hissing rumble of fire. Water splashed, sounding like a great wave. You accuse me of obscenity, of laying with one of those vile things? If you do, stand your ground in the field, and I will happily show you the error of your belief. A long pause, heavy with expectation. Natil held her breath. No, not accuse. But she went to that place, their capital, where the king was brought low by their seductive wiles. It's a cursed place, a blight on the world. A blight I have sworn we will all do away with. Have I given you cause to doubt me, any of you? Someone touched her wrist. In the same heartbeat, Natil whirled, free arm coming to block the expected blow with her elbow as she reached for one of her hair sticks. Pepper caught her wrist with a dragon's strength, pressing her finger to her lips. Hush she whispered. The main chamber, the dragons had fallen to bickering amongst themselves, childish whining about the human scourge. Clutching her skirts in her free hand, Natil let herself be led back into the hall, breath trembling in her chest. She hadn't heard her come up, hadn't even felt the water move. They got back to the hall, water dripping from Natil's legs. Pepper didn't let go of her wrist, leading her farther down the corridor, in the opposite direction of the laundry. There was a set of stairs there, leading up in a twisty curl that suggested they cut along the very edge of a rock wall. "'Go up here,' she instructed firmly but gently, 
Her hands plucked the skirt from the teals and smoothed it down, laying it against her hips so that it would wrinkle least from the water. Like the teal, her hair was pulled back into twists and braids, held with a pair of hair sticks. Unlike her, the hair sticks were visibly lethal, shaped like little silver daggers. This will take you directly to the Great Hall. Once you are there, go back to the kitchens. Her Majesty is feeling peckish. Pepper, I... No. The finger was back, touching the edge of her lips. No lies. I don't know why, but you have the Queen's faith. Do not make me regret giving you mine. Natil swallowed, licking her lips absently. Thank you. Just remember. Pepper gave her a long, analyzing look, and then turned to walk away. Natil watched her back as she went, until she turned a corner and vanished. The Queen's faith. Whatever that was, it might be a blessing. Telling her still-speeding heart to slow, Natil, sometimes known as Natalia, turned and headed up the stairs. She had to find Bucky. The butterfly constructs danced and jiggled through the air, dropping little sparks of itself as it fluttered. The wings didn't quite line up right with its movements, and no butterfly in the world had ever been colored so brightly. Tony loved it, toddling after the trail of magic it left behind like it was a lure. The butterfly swiveled and danced, leading him a merry chase around the great hall, giggling. In the corner, his current minders, Rody and Jarvis, sat together, Jarvis's back to the dragon's great blue shoulders. Neither took their eyes off him as he ran in between the legs of larger dragons, sometimes dropping down on all fours to pretend he had wings too, leaping up to snatch at the butterfly's trail, only to drop back down again with a squeal. Every once in a while, Rody swung his tail, catching Tony in the stomach and spinning him around before setting him back down again, dizzy and delighted. One day he'd get wings like his papa and Rody and the others, and then he'd fly all over the mountains, just like the others did. Something cold bounced into him from behind, sending Tony sprawling. Look who it is! The runt! Rody and Jarvis both leapt to their feet. Lord Morgan, leave him alone! Rody growled, head lowered. The queen said you weren't to bother him. I wouldn't if he'd fly like a real dragon. Morgan lowered his head, cold breath leaving a frost of ice across Tony's cheeks. He was such a pale blue that he only didn't appear white when he was buried in snow, everything except the glowing blue marks that crossed his chest. Well, little cousin, can you fly? Sniffling, Tony shook his head, but didn't cry. Papa hated it when he cried. Not? Not yet. Overhead, the dragon kit, who was testing out his own wings in the dome of the greater hall, let out a cackle of laughter. It stopped when Rody lifted his head and hissed but the sound made Tony huddle in on himself anyway. "'And that is because you're a mongrel. Mongols don't fly.' Morgan lifted his head, horns pressed back against his skull. "'If you want to challenge me, do it on the field. Otherwise, get out of my way.' Snarling, Rody stepped aside, and Jarvis rushed forward to scoop Tony up in a hug. Tony clung to his tunic, freshly scraped palms staining the light tan cloth. He watched Morgan go, trembling against the human retainer. "'Are you all right?' Rody asked, bumping Tony with his nose. It was big enough that Tony could climb on it, and sometimes did, but just then all he wanted was more hugs. Stretching out an arm, he tried to wrap it around Rody's nose and Jarvis, but Rody was just too big for good hugs. "'I'm okay,' he promised with a deep sniff. "'Jarvis?' Jarvis rubbed between his shoulder blades. "'Yes. It doesn't matter that Mom is a human, does it?' 
Tony bit his lip. Everyone looks human sometimes. Something softened in Jarvis's expression, and Tony found himself wrapped up in a hug so tight that he could barely breathe. No, it doesn't matter at all. Your mother is a great woman, and greatness shows, no matter what form someone takes. Tony nodded against Jarvis's shoulder. Do you think I'll be great too one day? he asked, voice sounding tiny in his throat. As great as Papa is? Rody's tail curled around them and up over Jarvis's shoulder to poke Tony in the cheeks. He flinched and giggled, scrubbing an eye of illicit tears. The dragon grinned, horns coming up and eyes widening. I think you're going to be eaten there. Tony woke up the next morning to a kiss and some more dried meat. The dream memory left him feeling oddly nostalgic for the days when his shortcomings could be wiped away with a well-meaning lie. He shook his head to be rid of the sensation, and accepted the meat from Steve. We're almost there. One more day. It was a full hour past dawn, and going by Steve's rumpled hair, he had only woken a few minutes earlier. Tony tried to be annoyed at the time lost, and found that he just couldn't. They needed to move, to hurry. But as he tried, as they'd both been losing an hour was likely the best they could have hoped for. He wasn't used to the armor for such long periods at a go. It took more energy than he'd anticipated, the medallion sucking it out of him like a leech. Ways to streamline the spell toyed at the back of his mind, but he devoted only a little conscious thought to them as he chewed the unidentifiable meat. There wasn't time for that. It wasn't time for anything. As he woke up, the same dreadful tug became more prominent, as if he were a fish someone had hooked. The only thing keeping him from leaping up and donning the armor was knowledge that if he didn't eat, he'd pay for it in speed. It occurred to him that the pull almost definitely wasn't natural. Urgency, yes, but the overwhelming urge to throw everything to the wind and fly made no sense. His mother had matters under control, and his friends were no doubt working on finding the identity of the would-be assassin. An hour lost shouldn't have been enough to make his skin itch for the wind. Naturally or not, Steve seemed to feel it too. He finished his own food quickly and pulled out Tony's armor from its pack setting it by his side, ready for wear. It was streaked with mud still, leaves trapped in oddly placed joints. Steve's armor wasn't in much better shape. They looked like they'd been traveling for weeks rather than only a few days. Maybe the prophetess would have a bath they could use, or the bay might be swimmable. Cold as it was, it was preferable to being grimy. Tony had heard that some humans barely bathed at all in winter, but dragons were fastidious by nature. There were thermal springs that provided large bathing pools in the citadel, and the queen's wings had spelled pipes that heated water. The thought of going too long without a wash made Tony's skin crawl. Still chewing the last of his meal, Tony started buckling on his armor. Waiting overnight hadn't made the leather any more malleable, but it was easier on than off. He got it all on with only a little help from Steve, locking the medallion in place over his chest. As soon as he did, he felt the drain as it ate, the little bit of energy sleeping had built up. Almost there, Tony reminded himself, slipping an arm around Steve's waist and triggering the flight spell. He could have made better time if he'd left him, the way Steve had suggested the day before, but even with the grip of urgency around him, he balked at the idea. Little sense to it as there was. He needed Steve with him, and the hook didn't seem to disagree. There was no pause to eat and stretch at midday, Tony let the armor dip down once and looked over at Steve, only to get a shake of the head and answer. Keep going, it said clearly, as if he'd been speaking in plain Azila-san. 
By afternoon, scrubs turned to even thinner scrubs, and the twinkle of turquoise ocean on the horizon. The Bay of Silks was a long stretch of crescent-shaped coasts on the eastern edge of the Seven Hills. The upper half was nothing but desert, endless stretches of sand, and, farther north, ice that couldn't support human towns. Nomadic clans of dragons were said to make their home there, working in harmony with humans of the same sort to survive their harsh landscape. On the southern horn of the bay, a strange settlement hugged the beach. From above, it looked somewhat similar to some of the farming communities they'd passed over on their journey. Fields stretched out in neat squares and rectangles. Some of them follow, but some green with crops. Tony couldn't recognize at a glance. Small boats bobbed in the harbor, no doubt fishing to supplement the winter stores. Unlike the other communities they'd passed, the town was built in a spiral, a single endless loop cut through only by small walkways set at odd, seemingly random intervals. At the center of the spiral was a gleaming temple made, not of the usual limestone or marble, but of volcanic glass. The glare of the late afternoon sun off the roof alone was nearly blinding, forcing Tony to veer slightly north to see properly. It sat in the middle of the city and sparkled like a jewel set in some elaborate crown. Steve tugged at his arm insistently, pointing to a clearing just outside the strange town. They finished their circuit before Tony sat down, knees and shoulders aching oddly, as if he'd walked the distance rather than flown. He flipped up his faceplate and took a deep breath of fresh, faintly salty air. The exhaustion was nearly as bad as it had been the night before. Shaking it off wasn't easy, but he didn't have a choice. They were too close to bother resting. "'Are you going to be okay?' Steve tilted his head to give Tony a soft look. It wasn't a full night of rest, but it sparked a fresh energy in his veins. "'I'm fine. Nearly there, right?' Tony grinned and snapped his faceplate back in place. It brushed his incoming beard with an odd, uncomfortable prickle. "'Come on. Maybe there'll be a razor waiting.' The main spiral of the town was cobbled with clean, neat little stones that locked together, as if they'd been carved from a single piece of rock. Pale buildings seemed to be the norm, made out of a pink-white sort of stone, and occasionally added to with equally pale wood. There were no markets that Tony saw, nor shops. There was no sign of commerce at all, though they passed wagon loads of what looked like goods, and more than one porch had someone using the daylight for fine stitchery. People in brightly colored clothing watched them with curious expressions as they walked through the city. There was, at first glance, nothing tying any of these residents together. Skin tones ranged from dark as roadies to light as Steve's, passing through a ruddy tan and golden on the way. Some people were dressed in the familiar loose pants and over-tunics that Tony knew from home, others in the longer style of the Seven Hills, and still more loose-draping fabric that only barely allowed for modesty. What they had in common, Tony realized eventually, was that they were all happy. There wasn't a single beggar in sight, and the people they saw at work seemed pleased to do it, happy to hand over fruits and bolts of cloth without apparent payment, singing cheerfully as they hauled water. Put together, it gave Tony chills. It wasn't natural. Even as a terriot, there was a barter trade going at all times of the year. Dragon-mined ores were especially sought after in the West, and there was nothing so fine as dragon silk from the worms that were found only in deep caves in the heart of the Nichel Mountains. The unease Tony felt seemed to have affected Steve, too. "'This place isn't real,' he murmured, under his breath, edging closer to Tony. "'Where are the children?' With a shock, Tony realized that he was right. The youngest person visible was nearly fully grown. 
There was no sight of the grubby children that should have been there, either playing or working or some combination of both. Tony hadn't spent any real time with humans before, but he knew that they had children quickly and plentifully. Without conscious thought, Tony's hand gripped Steve's between them. This doesn't seem like such a brilliant plan anymore. Steve squeezed Tony's fingers, which would have been more reassuring if it didn't keep gripping them tight. The priestess will have your answer. But at what cost? There was no answer for that. As they got closer to the center of the spiral, the buildings grew larger, more official. Bits of volcanic glass started to show up as ornaments, first as wind chimes and then as patterns and murals set into the walls of buildings. The people changed, too. Tunics and leggings turned to robes and flowing skirts. And then the temple. It was set behind a massive set of copper and brass gates, decorated with patterned starbursts and broken, apparently deliberately, off their hinges. A woman waited between them, wearing an open white robe and not much else. A short, sheer skirt made a pretense of obscuring the view of her hips, but there was nothing blocking her breasts but the fall of her long, blonde hair. She nodded to them, once each with a grace and formality that reminded Tony of his mother. Her eyes were like chips of ice, hard and frozen blue. Anthony of Azi Terriot, Stephen of the Seven Hills, I am Emma, a priestess here. Come and be welcome within these walls. You knew we were coming? Suspicion laced Tony's voice. How? Her lips curled into an arrogant smirk. You are here to see a prophetess, aren't you? She tilted her head, eyeing them with obvious disdain. You cannot see the high priestess like that. Please follow me, and you will be shown a place where you may refresh yourselves and give an attire appropriate for your visit. Without waiting to see if they would follow, she turned on a bare heel and led them through the courtyard. Steve had turned bright red, looking as if he wanted to object, but couldn't find the words for it. Grinning under his faceplate, Tony wrapped his arm around Steve's and tugged him along. Be nice to the priestess, he whispered lightly, not bothering to make it low enough for actual privacy. Staring is rude for humans, isn't it? She has a lot to stare at, Steve answered, flashing a quick, embarrassed smile. The priestess did actually have a lot to stare at, even from the back. It was clear that her robe was cut to be flattering to her figure. It hugged her waist and flared around her hips and knees, flashing silver at her ankles, as she led them along a curving path paved with smooth stone. It meandered through a flowing courtyard littered with trees and beautifully tended shrubs. Wind chimes danced in the breeze, underlying the murmur of voices. Here was where the children were, gathering in quiet groups around scrolls and wax tablets, people in robes similar to Emma's, though mostly with more on underneath, wandered from group to group. One had set up with a collection of children near a wall, and was using a stick of charcoal to sketch a diagram on it that Tony recognized from his mother's lessons when he was a kid. Another seemed to have put together some sort of counting game out of a round, painted stones, and was playing it with a set of little ones barely old enough to be walking. Emma led them to a building set apart from the rest. Trees ringed it with a thick copse out of seasoned flowers and leaves, casting thick shades on the ground. When she pushed the door open, steam wafted out in delicate tendrils, scented with more lavender and spices. Tony couldn't recognize. "'This is the bathing house,' she explained touching something on the wall that made mage lights flicker to life in little glass globes. The first room was plain, with a few benches and empty racks. It will have everything you require. Take as long as you need. 
After, there are appropriate altars to the seven nameless gods of the hills if you would like to make use of them. Icy blue eyes peered at Tony scornfully. We also have one for the wing mother, but I doubt you will bother to use it. Leave your things here, and they will be collected by attendants. And if we don't want our things to be collected? Tony asked, looking around the room. No other people were visible, but that didn't mean they weren't looking out of sight, waiting to make off with his armor the second he took it off. Then your need to see the high priestess must not be so great as your pride. The serenity in her expression was unlined by a sour smugness that made Tony's teeth ache to snap at her. We do not allow weapons within the temple proper. Steve's hand touched Tony's elbows, thumb resting in the gap of the armor plates. You're all temple servants here, aren't you? She nodded slowly, as if she expected a trick from the question. Our community is dedicated to the service of the gods. All the gods. Anthony of Aze Teriat, even Ashkara, wing mother, whom you and yours neglect direly. You're not going to trust them just because they're priests, are you? Tony demanded, not at all upset by the passing reference to his own goddess. Dragons took religion lightly, only paying the mother her due at hatchings, deaths, and the occasional time in between. Something about the temple didn't sit right with him. He didn't know what it was, other than a twisting in the back of his head. It smelled like secrets and good intentions. Neither had ever really done him much good. He'd known more than one priest that had been untrustworthy. They were usually the ones who made the most effort at being pious. And also because they already have us surrounded and knew we were coming. Steve let go of Tony's arm and started stripping off his mail. If they wanted to do us harm, they could have just swarmed us when we arrived. Emma snorted. Your faith is overwhelming. She stepped away from the door, gesturing them in. Toss your journey to meaninglessness and ashes if you like. I have other duties to attend. Blessings upon you. With a nod, she turned and walked away, vanishing behind the trees.